Welcome to MuggleCast, your weekly ride into the Wizarding World fandom. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. And I'm Laura. And this week, we get to hear from you, the listeners, on all the things we've gotten wrong over the last several episodes. No, it's not actually that. There's not one correction email in here. We do make mistakes from time to time. We do get things wrong from time to time, just not currently, recently. (laughs) We're only human. We do get some really great feedback from our listeners today and looking forward to reading those. It's always so nice to get listener feedback and read through it all. So thanks, everybody who does contact us. But first of all, happy birthday, Harry Potter, Neville Longbottom, July 31st. Man, we want to, since we're not strictly focusing on Harry and Neville's birthday, we do want to mention some MuggleCast episodes where we did a deep dive into questions like, what if Neville were the chosen one, which happened on MuggleCast 523, or the deep similarities between Harry and Neville, which happened on MuggleCast 481. We're going to put links to those other episodes in the show notes, and that may also help you uh, next week when MuggleCast itself takes a little break, because Andrew and Laura get a little bit of a vacation. Micah and me are at LeakyCon next weekend. It's going to be a good time. So in lieu of a main episode, we're going to tell you in a minute, We have a bonus plan, but also you get to listen to these other Neville and Harry themed episodes. I remember these being very good episodes, too. Mm -hmm. Yeah, these were really fun episodes. Yeah, because I think Laura planned them. (laughs) (laughs) That's right. We had Laura back. I think she joined them for it. I will say I have a deep affection for Neville, so that's part of it. But also you got to give yourselves more credit. You were there. Yeah, well, I, look, I mean, one of the great things about a Muggle Mail episode is the listeners plan the episode. So I love doing these episodes. Like Andrew's <laughs> like, oh, do a Muggle Mail. Okay, fine. You know, like, <laughs> well, you, but you do a good job curating the emails and you write little summaries, which I also really appreciate. So we can introduce it each email nicely. Mm-hmm. So yeah, definitely check those out. But speaking of birthdays, happy birthday to us. We're turning 18 years old. What? We're old wow. enough to vote. Yeah. And so many other things, <laughs> which we'll actually discuss in our bonus MuggleCast. Uh, MuggleCast released its very first episode Sunday, August 7th, 2005. It was me, Kevin, and Ben. Kevin, we just had on a few months ago talking about Hogwarts Legacy. It's great to have him on. Well, he was talking about Skyrim. We were talking about Skyrim. <laughs> Check out our Skyrim episode. <laughs> uh, it was great to see him and, and catch up with him, one of the OG hosts. And yeah, so as Eric teased, we're going to be recording a bonus MuggleCast episode that celebrates our birthday. We're actually recording it right after today's episode. Uh, but that will actually, even though Bonus MuggleCast is typically exclusively available for patrons, this one will be released to the public as well, since it's our birthday episode and we're taking a little time off. We have a lot of fun topics planned. I went and found the front page of the New York Times from August 7th, 2005, and I'm going to read you guys the headlines. <laughs> I'll oh just God. tell you now, time is a flat circle. <laughs> oh, <dear. laughs> oh, no. To quote True Detective. <laughs> uh, yeah, this that's what gets me the most is when people do that. It's like, okay, 18 years ago, feels like yesterday, feels like maybe five years at the most. But then when you look at what was in the news, who was popular, what songs came out, and you think about all the ones you know that came out since then, that's when you feel older. I got my mom this thing of like, when you were born, the year that you were born, 
price of milk was like oh those are fun you know yeah 80 cents or something a gallon and you're just like wow that's insane so that's what really get makes me feel old we should have looked up price of gas price of milk price of eggs we could google that stuff really quick we yeah that's true and the last time I think we're going to be making this announcement on the podcast, but Hooray. and we actually have something to announce this time. We do. Uh, Eric, Chloe, and I are going to be at LeakyCon in Chicago next week or this week, I guess, right? This week from August 4th through the 6th. Listeners who are interested in registering for the con, if you haven't done so yet, can visit LeakyCon.com. You can enter code MUGGLE. You'll get a $10 discount when checking out. And of course, you can do a day pass. You don't have to go for the entire con. If you are going for just one day, we recommend Saturday. Right, Eric? That's right. That's the day of our official MuggleCast Live, uh, which will be Saturday, August 5th at 1.15 p.m. on the second stage. Uh, we're very excited to have the date and time and uh, actually place as well. That's the second stage um, down at McCormick Place for LeakyCon. In addition to that, though, we do have our full list of panels that we're participating in. And you know what? I've gone and collected them in one easy place for everyone to find. It's not a leaky website. It's not an app. You don't need to download anything. Just go to mugglecast.com slash live. And that is where you'll find the full list of events that Micah and I and Chloe will be participating in uh, during LeakyCon. You can go to the MuggleCast website. Even click on live in the main nav, and it's just a full list of all our panels. Okay, sounds good. I did want to shout out also, I've been asked to be part of the Puffs read-through that's happening. Oh, fun. The Puffs play on Sunday at 1.30. I'm, I want everyone to show up because it's such a great show, and I'm going to be, it's a stage reading, and I'm going to be doing the, uh, the stage directions. So I'm looking really cool. forward to that. It's obviously a great show for those who managed to see it. I didn't get an invite for that. Uh, well, you're you're invited to watch. I'm me. invited to watch, basically. <laughs> yeah. Well, you're not a Hufflepuff either. I, mean, I know. As a, puff, true. as a Puff, it's the greatest honor. Yeah, it's the greatest. Wow. God. <laughs> okay. All right. All right. All Mike right. is getting canceled at LeakyCon. That's good. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And also worth mentioning, we are doing a meetup on Friday night, 730. If you RSVP'd for that event, you should have received an email already. Um, so definitely check your email. That's the... Uh, the most that we can give in terms of information here. And I will say, you know, it's going to be a lot of fun um, and we'll be doing some giveaways too. Cool. There will be coverage on our social media channels as well, since uh, Chloe is going. With all those announcements out of the way, let's get over to Muggle Mail now. All right. So uh, the first email comes from Landon and he's talking about the Hogwarts course load. And he says, I'm a longtime listener, and I was listening to your recent episode on Professor Trelawney's prediction, and I had thought regarding Hermione's schedule. If I remember right, all the third years at the end of their second year have the option to choose at least two extra classes. Now, Hermione is the anomaly that chooses all of them, but it seems very unlikely that all students just happen to choose classes that didn't happen at the same time. We know all the Gryffindors chose divination and care of magical creatures, but it seems odd that every other student filled in the other classes. Presumably, there was a single care of magical creatures class with the puffs and the claws of arithmancy, ancient runes, and muggle studies, and they didn't have conflicting schedules with any of those. 
Basically, I'm just saying that Hogwarts must have been a logistical nightmare trying to get the classes scheduled to accommodate all of the students' different course choices. Let me know what you all think. That is such an interesting point I've never thought of because we only see this through the lens of Hermione's scheduling difficulties, but we never see anyone else have a problem, which is weird because presumably somebody wanted to take arithmancy and divination, which I believe happened at the same time, right? Hermione can't have been the only one. That's curious. (laughs) Very curious. It's a bit of a plot hole, honestly, right? Mm. If you think about it, because there's no way that all of the Gryffindors chose care of magical creatures and all of the Gryffindors chose divination. Some of Mm. them presumably are in those other classes. Can it count as a plot hole if it takes 25 years for someone to bring it up No, <laughs> since the book came out, right? Is there a statue of those like, this is, yeah, an amazing, exactly. <laughs> this is an amazing point, but I'm like, why is this the first time we're thinking of this? Yes. So Statue of limitations. I like that. It's yeah. uh, we waited too long to realize this, so we can't issue a complaint. It is an incredible <laughs> point, though. I really like it. It is. I wonder, because I guess like in high school and college, they have like systems that they pay for, right? To like schedule everybody and make yeah. it all work. Yeah. Like yeah. Hogwarts has to have something like that, but it's it's not technological. And it's it's magic. The popular classes you could get locked out of if you don't mm-hmm. register. That's you don't oh, have. Oh, I hate waitlist seniority yeah. in some cases. Oh, right. I tried to take this Harry Potter course at George Washington University, and they only allow like 14 people in. It was awful. You got to talk to Julian. I'm so glad you brought that up. (laughs) All right. Well, our next email comes from Amy, and this actually has to do with subjects as well, particularly around Draco electing to take care of magical creatures. So Amy says, Hi, I've just been listening to episode 618, where you were talking about care of magical creatures being an elective, and it being messed up that Draco continues to go to Hagrid's classes when he could drop the subject. If Hogwarts follows the same structure as most UK schools, then when Harry and the others are choosing their extra classes for their third year, this is the equivalent to UK children choosing the subjects they will study for GCSEs, um, which are tests that follow the end of high school or secondary school, um, which which they take around 15 or 16 years old like their owls at Hogwarts. After completing um, their secondary school at 16, children in the UK choose a select few subjects that they will study at college. These are the years you are 17 and 18 before you go to university and usually are at a different institute to the secondary school, but can be the same. And these years conclude with A-levels, which are the equivalent to newts which they take in their seventh year. So if Hogwarts is following the same structure as most UK schools, Draco couldn't have dropped any subjects after choosing them, except in exceptional circumstances, and would have to complete the years up to the tests. I'm not a Draco apologist, but he is a pretty, because he is a pretty rotten character, but wanted to let you know how it works in the UK. Love the show. I've been listening since I was 17 and I am now 35. It's like listening to friends. Oh, Amy, that's so sweet. I'm, I'm almost 35. So it's, it's definitely a marker of time for sure. Yeah, we're we're basically, yeah, we're basically the same age. We grew up together. We are friends, Amy. Yeah. I love how we're getting schooled on <laughs> schooling school in the UK. Yeah. 
these well, last no, this two is emails. Helpful. It's and this is why helpful. I like Muggle Mail episodes to get that international perspective. Yeah, 100%. We're Americans. We don't know anything about British boarding school. <laughs> we just drop subjects. <laughs> we don't care. We drop subjects. We drop out. We eat cheeseburgers and pizza and, and yeah. don't get enough sleep. And But why was Hermione allowed to drop a class? Because Trelawney was so awful. But Draco literally got maimed in Care of Magical Creatures. I feel like that's a valid reason for him to drop the class. Well, he didn't want to drop the class because he wanted to continue inflicting mental uh, torture on Hagrid for having to see him yeah. and put up with him well, the rest that's, of the... Well, that's the point. Um, it's, was he still in the class because he couldn't drop it? Or was he still in the class because he's a, a bleep? Yeah. And... I imagine the conversation between Hermione and McGonagall would be a fairly easy one when she said it was divination she wanted to drop. (laughs) (laughs) True. But Eric, this next email actually is one of many. We just selected Omar, but we got a lot of emails about this. All right, Omar, you're the chosen one. They say, I'm a month behind. I just listened to the episode when you talk about chapter 11 of Prisoner of Azkaban. My comment is in regards to the guest host theory about Dumbledore standing up first at the table on Christmas morning. I have heard a different theory. When Trelawney arrives, there are already 13 at the table, if you count Peter Pettigrew. So when Dumbledore stands up, there are 13 at the table. I know the book doesn't specifically say Scabbers was with Ron, but just before that scene, Crookshanks was in the boys' dormitory with Hermione. It's fair to assume that Ron was worried and didn't want to leave Scabbers alone, so we can also assume Ron took Scabbers with him to breakfast. Thoughts? Thanks for the show. I love this, uh, Omar, because somebody's got to be keeping track of where Peter Pettigrew is, all those places he shouldn't be. And um, if not explicitly pointed out, uh, in a scene, we don't often think of it, but this is very sleuthy. This is very great. Yeah, I think we can de- we can declare canon on this. I agree. Yeah, and we know Dumbledore gets it. I declare canon. This is from Catherine about the difference in brooms that players use in Quidditch. We were talking about how it's unfair. People get an unfair advantage. So Catherine said, hi, Mugglecasters. I wanted to write in to address something you've brought up a few times about how Hogwarts Quidditch players have different quality brooms. You're absolutely right that this is unfair, but I wanted to point out a real world situation that is the same and not just at the school level, but at the international level. In bobsleighing, Different countries have different qualities of sled based on how much money the country is willing or able to invest in the sport. I believe this situation also applies to the other sliding sports, luge and skeleton. If I recall correctly, from the last Winter Olympics, Germany and the U.S. currently tend to have the best sleds. And it's hard to find online sources for this, but here's an article talking about how the U.S. started investing more in bobsleighing in 2010. Another sport this applies to is car racing, such as Formula One, which, as the article mentions, bobsleigh engineers actually work with race car engineers. However, in that case, it is recognized as more of a team sport in which the engineers get a decent amount of recognition for helping the drivers win, even though the drivers get most of the glory. Thanks for reading, Catherine. This is cool. Yeah, um, I when I used to watch the Winter Olympics, I mean, I guess I still do. I used to love the bobsled competitions that those were always the most fun to me. And I didn't know this. So thanks for the heads up. 
Yeah, there's there's sort of two stories here. One, that uh, countries are allowed to compete with vastly different uh, sled qualities. And two, the fact that there's very little information about this fact online. So it's kind of a conspiracy a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. I also love that we were able here to draw a comparison, I think, a little more directly than we have on previous episodes, because... I think when we were thinking about sporting rules, we were thinking about things like football and soccer, um, where you're not sort of like using a piece of equipment to get around. Mm, Right. We fell short on imagining, I think, a sport where you're really using a, like you said, like a vehicle to convey you. But these two examples are great. Bringing up the bobsleigh example is great. And our next email comes from PJ talking about divination. And they say, I was just listening to the eruption of Mount Hermione and your conversation around divination. And I was interested to find that I had a completely different opinion on the topic's coverage in the books. Like some of you, I tend to be somewhat indifferent about the types of things mentioned, tarot, astrology, etc. But generally, I'm open-minded about things that others find meaningful. And I felt that their portrayal in the book may have less reflected the author's opinion, but rather a characterization or a commentary of the broader public's perspective, biases inherent in the subject, and or simply a factor of the amusing nature of Trelawney as the teacher. It's interesting to note that while some of the students, notably Harry and Ron, are skeptical and or flippant about the subject, they have a tendency to be flippant about other subjects they may view as soft as well, For example, History of Magic, which is also humorously presented with a teacher to match. While Trelawney may not be the best teacher and is presented as a fraud and is maybe only in place to protect her, her noted relative is not, and she does seem to have real, if intermittent, powers of prophecy. The subject has presumably also been a mainstay at Hogwarts and doesn't seem to be particularly controversial, so it clearly has value as also evidenced by its prominence in the Department of Mysteries. Further, when Trelawney is sacked in Book 5 and Ferenz is brought in, the students are mystified, but slightly more impressed with the subject matter, or at least so it seemed to me. They clearly found the class important enough to replace the teacher. Ultimately, this seems to me to reflect a respect, perhaps not universal, but there for the subject and its role in the magical world and warrants its inclusion by the author, not just as a humorous subject, but a real one with consequences in the story and the mixed feelings about it simply reflect those in our muggle society at large. Just my thoughts. Thanks so much for what you do. So long email from PJ, but I think valid points are raised by him. Yeah, absolutely. For sure. You know, we definitely do get I think different interpretations of divination and the mystic arts in general in the books. I mean, if we're looking at divination through the Hermione lens, which I would argue is really the lens we're seeing it through in this book, it's definitely pretty dismissive, but you're totally right later on in the series when the consequences of divination become more clear, there is this, I think, heavier weight that the subject carries. Also, when Feren starts teaching it, to your point as well, he's just a better teacher than Trelawney is. So I, I think it's it's a little bit of a lot of what you're talking about here. 
honestly, it's, you know, it's the character's lenses, it's the societal lenses, I think the author has a lens. um, And I think that all kind of comes together to give us these various perspectives. (laughs) And what you're saying, Laura, too, runs parallel with the fact that divination can't be heralded as the answer or the end all be all too early in the series because then Harry would be using it to figure out how to defeat Voldemort. Yeah. Uh, right. So, and he can't know too much about his own future and things are actively covering. So maybe another reason that divination is dismissed um, is because it would <laughs> sort of replace all the plot that has to happen uh, until later in the books when it's a lot, we're a lot closer to that goalpost kind of of where we have to get to that divination is allowed to be shown as oh yeah like the centers do it very accurately yeah and it is serious that is interesting to think of that as not so much um an intentional effort to disregard the art of divination but more of a storytelling device to support the plot unfolding right (laughs) um i like it i do too i i think the fact that it's brought up that Ferenz replaces Trelawney, that they don't just completely get rid of the subject altogether, shows that there's some level of validity to it. And it's been at Hogwarts for a period of time, even thinking about Hogwarts legacy. You have Professor Onai who teaches Mm -hmm. it, and it's very much a part of the game. And she seems a very well-respected professor uh, in divination. And so if we're at least to go back with what we know, this taking place in what the late 1800s yeah 1880s Um, so divination has been a subject at hogwarts presumably since the very beginning well uh, very good point although it's also not 100 percent legitimized either because it still remains in the department of mysteries right they can't quite place their finger on it so it's still kind of elusive in whether or not it's real so, so in the Harry Potter timeline, they currently just have, you know, not the best teacher, but after Trelawney, after Ferenz, not that Ferenz was bad, but they'll find a they'll find another teacher as good as that one in Hogwarts Legacy. Yeah, I think Trelawney's portrayal is also somewhat influenced by the author's views towards certain types of women. I know we've talked about that on the show before, but women who are portrayed to be, you know, either ultra feminine or kind of aloof as Trelawney is, it's very clear that the other female characters in the story look down on them. So that's an area of intersectionality too, where it's like, this could be seen as a a quote, soft subject when it's being taught by a woman, but when it's being taught by a man, everyone's perspective changes a little bit. And that's that's not to say that Ferenz isn't a better teacher, because I think he is, but there is a layer there that has to be considered as we're, you know, sort of analyzing this. All right, our next email, uh, related still to Trelawney. I love the way that you curated these, Micah. There's like... Oh. There's this beautiful through line taking us through this episode. I love it. A, 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 th- a thread. Yes. A thread. 
Yes. <laughs> Connecting the threads. Well, the next one is emails. completely uh, in a different realm of discussion. So we're, we're going to take a little <laughs> detour. <laughs> so this is from Catherine. It's actually in defense of McGonagall, though. Catherine says, regarding the discussion of Minerva being a jerk to Sybil at Christmas lunch. In defense of Minerva, she could be acting in defense of Harry. She is aware of the actions and predictions Sybil is making about Harry and the stress they might be causing him. Minerva could be being particularly rude to show Harry it's all nonsense. Is this the best way to go about it? Nope. But if someone was scaring my kid, I would probably be rather aggressive in my efforts to show them as a liar and a fraud. Just a thought. Obviously, choose kindness, and my girl Minerva should have done better. <laughs> wow. <laughs> I love it. I like I the agree. parent analogy. Yeah, McGonagall's just looking out for a son-like figure, mm-hmm. someone who needs a parental figure at Hogwarts, because he definitely doesn't have one at his summer home. Okay, for the next email, I we do want to actually provide, uh, it's a little heavier subject, uh, so we'd like to provide actually a, a trigger warning um, to our listeners. As well as what I'm going to do is I'm going to time this next email and just provide a simple timestamp of how far I had to fast forward. So the the trigger warning is uh, for self-harm and or suicide. The timestamp to jump ahead is eight minutes. And this comes from Lars, uh, who says, what's poppin' (laughs) y'all? I had a morbid, albeit intriguing thought surrounding wands and wand lore. Would a wizard be able to take their own life with their wand? Context might matter with this, considering the subject matter. In one of your previous discussions, the three brothers story was brought up and how the brother with the resurrection stone ended up taking his own life to be with his love. Additionally, in the movie, it's depicted that he hanged himself. Unless I'm mistaken, this is the only example we see of someone taking their own life in the wizarding world. It's mentioned that people who have been kissed by a dementor usually end their own lives, but outside that, nothing. This led me to the haunting and eerie imagery of a wizard turning their own wand against them, and it made me stop and ask, wait, would that even be possible? In many spaces, in many cases, an owner can just cast a spell on oneself, disillusionment charms, and transfiguration to name a couple, but the Elder Wand shows a different side of wands. I know in many aspects surrounding wand lore, the Elder Wand is the exception, not the rule, but here is a quote from Harry and Voldy's final confrontation. Harry saw Voldemort's green jet meet his own spell saw the Elder Wand fly high, dark against the sunrise, spinning across the enchanted ceiling like the head of Nagini, spinning toward the air, towards the master, it would not kill. So the Elder Wand refused to kill Harry. However, given the Elder Wand's defiance and the evidence that all wands carry some sort of sentience or agency, would a wand, wielded by its true owner, be able to harm its owner? And... Uh, Lars also presents two theories. One, maybe the wand would self-destruct. We know the amount of intent and will a wizard must have to cast an unforgivable. Harry realized that with the Caro sister. So I think in essence, an unstoppable force would meet an immovable object causing the wand to split or shatter as a last act of protection over its owner. And the second theory is that certain wand makers would have built-in fail-safes preventing this from happening. I could see a, quote, moral wand maker like an Ollivander build in a failsafe that the wand would simply not follow through on the wizard's wish. Conversely, Grigorovich might not care to add that when constructing their wands. I'm sorry, I know this is super dark, but it was a thought I had. 
Um, and they end the email with Slytherin's the goat. A Slytherin would <laughs> ask this question. Um, so I I like the second theory that there would be fail safes. I can't remember the context, but I feel like we've spoken about fail safes in wands before. Maybe mm. it was in a context like this. I just can't remember. Um, but you would think that, yes, good eggs like Ollivander would build that in. I mean, it could also be a combination of your two theories, lawyers. It could be there's a failsafe and also the wine, this failsafe is the wine would self-destruct. Mm. <laughs> I yeah. don't know. I don't think we've ever really discussed this topic at all on the show. And I do think the wand would self-destruct. I think its ultimate goal is to protect its owner. And so, it, I mean, the example that's provided with the Elder Wand, if Harry would have tried to use it on himself, I think there could have been a different outcome, but it's showing its true allegiance to Harry in that moment by leaving Voldemort and coming to him. It, it is a very dark subject to discuss, but I would hope that the wand would protect the wizard, right? That's its ultimate job. My perspective on this is that wands are tools just like, you know, handguns we say they're for protection but like they're they're value neutral um people kill people however where i think it would fail is not necessarily in like some magic wand loyalty surfacing but in your need as lars points out for intent i think a lot of people that um choose this act uh, are doing so in a moment of desperation um, and doing so in, in great emotional strife and not strictly for wanting to kill. Um, you know, I, I think that the parameters surrounding the, um, actually performing the death curse are what would stop somebody from being able to use their wand to, to do it, if that makes sense. Yeah. And I think it also depends on how somebody tried to do it right. Like you may not necessarily um, be pursuing that through trying to cast the death curse on yourself. You could presumably do something else that results in death. I mean, think about Luna Lovegood's mother, for example, we know that she died at, at her own hand by magic gone wrong. Right. So it can happen. A wand can hurt you. Hufflepuff's badger actually pointed out Ron's wand did hurt him and Lockhart in book two. Of course, it mm. was broken. So there's that piece of it. It really does call into question this failsafe. If there is one, at what point does it start malfunctioning? And at what point can the wand maybe sort of perceive an act to be intentional versus accidental and then allow that thing to happen. It is really, really interesting because the wands definitely do. There's some like awareness they have. We see that supported in the fact that Harry's and Voldemort's wands will not fight each other. That's why Voldemort has to go in search of the elder wand in the first place. So the wands do have some degree of awareness and will not do certain things. It's just not entirely clear where that line is, I don't think. You also think about Ariana Dumbledore yeah. being accidentally yeah. killed. I mean, nobody intended to kill her, and yet the wines, the spell hit her, and she did die. So, yeah, yeah that is a good call out. Like, where where would the line be if there is that failsafe? I guess it would be, like, 
very intentionally am trying to harm myself. Mm-hmm. Yeah, or like you could you could relatio a bundle of rocks at the top of a hill and watch them roll towards you. Like right, that's a simple yeah. spell. Yeah. It it also begs the question. I know Lars asked specifically about a witch or wizard using their own wand, but what would stop them from taking somebody else's, which doesn't have a loyalty to them, and using it on themselves? I think yeah. that's well, you know, another dark. Here's a joke. Possibility. It's, it's said in the books that somebody else's wand will never work as good as your own wand, so maybe it'll fail for that reason. Ooh, <laughs> it makes me think very much of the whole. Um, kind of through line in Aragon that, you know, if the rider dies, so does the dragon. But if the dragon dies, the rider can live on. It's kind of like the same thing with the wizard and the wand. I like that a lot. Now I'm also thinking of Puff the Magic Dragon, which makes me very <laughs> sad because the boy goes away and then the dragon gets real sad. Time to cheer us up with Boggarts and Dementors. Let's talk yes. about Boggarts and Dementors instead. <laughs> this is from Allie. She said, Hola, y'all. I've got another take on your discussion about why Boggarts can replicate the effects of a Dementor. I believe it's because Harry's biggest fear is not the Dementor itself, but how it makes him feel. He fears both the horrible depression-like effects of their presence as well as the loss of control they cause him. If the Boggart, side note, autocorrect tried to make that big fart, (laughs) just looked like a Dementor, but didn't cause the coldness, sadness, and bad memories, it would lose the fear factor and maybe even help Harry get over the fear. Like when you watch a scary movie with your ears covered and realize it's kind of silly without the eerie music and sound effects. Love the show. I look forward to it every week. P.S. Laura, I also taught in Latin America and am a Ravenclaw. Let's be amigas. A donde? Donde? Donde trabajaste? Oh my God. Just <laughs> please speak in Spanish for the rest of the episode. I don't know how well that's going to go. I would kind of love that, but it's fine. <laughs> I like this email from Allie. Yeah. I think we talked a lot during the chapter by chapter analysis about kind of the difference between Harry facing the Dementor, the Boggart, how they interplay with each other and why. Didn't we ask a question about why is it that Harry isn't using ridiculous, but he's using actually expecto Patronum to get rid of a Boggart? It's not a real Dementor. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Well, the next email comes from Maddie who is talking about the Horcrux inside of Harry. And she says, Hey y'all, I just finished the latest chapter by chapter 615. And I was really interested in the discussion about Harry's ability to do the required advanced magic of a Patronus in part due to Voldemort's Horcruxy influence on him. I think it's really valid that being the Volda host for a piece of his soul (laughs) would definitely influence Harry's power but not in the case of a Patronus. In fact, I think Voldemort's influence would actually hinder the Patronus ability as it's commented that Death Eaters, and presumably Voldemort himself, were not able to produce a Patronus as they were dark wizards. This instead could have made Harry's attempts to learn this particular type of magic even more difficult since Voldemort is the essence of darkness and evil, the antithesis of what a Patronus is. In that case, even more kudos to Harry for being able to not only accomplish really advanced magic, but to overcome that huge barrier. Thanks for being amazing. I like this point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I agree with this too. Completely counters what I said uh, back in that episode, but (laughs) hey, that's that's why we get muggle mail. 
Yeah. Well, I mean, yeah, Voldemort sure. is extraordinarily powerful. So it's a good leap. It's a good, I thought it was a great theory when you presented it. I think this is a great counter theory too. Great counter. Yeah. And look, at the end of the day, we know that probably one of the best at Defense Against the Dark Arts was Tom Riddle. So perhaps Tom Riddle would have been very good at producing a Patronus, not Voldemort. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Volta host. <laughs> I really, I, like I love, phrase. yeah. I mean, what she, she threw a couple Horcruxy. I don't know that we've ever used that much no. on the show. Volda host. We're gonna have to steal some of Maddie's uh, ideas here. I'm sensing future Quizich uh, names coming from people. Oh. I also need to try to type Bogart into my iPhone and see what happens. <laughs> oh, it didn't change. It's a big fart. That's oh, sad. Man. It knows I'm a Harry Potter podcaster, so it's like, oh, he's definitely intending to use that word. Well, you know, you, you know, can you can set up those uh, autofill things yeah. where every time you, you ch- can. <laughs> Maybe Allie texts about big farts a lot. Oh, so. <laughs> careful what you tell us, listeners. Uh, oh my uh, god! Honestly, these emails reveal more about the sender than the hosts <laughs> answering them. Well, no pressure, guys. Um, moving on to our next email. This one is from Faza. I think is how you say that. Please correct me if I got that wrong. Um, Faza says, hey, y'all. My name is Faza. I'm 14 years old and love listening to the show. I had a quick question about the last couple of episodes talking about Snape resenting Lupin. And one of the many reasons being that he has always wanted the Defense Against the Dark Arts job. Didn't Snape know or hear about the fact that this job position was cursed? He could have at least taken into consideration the fact that all recent Defense Against the Dark Arts professors were either killed or had to resign. Was he unaware or did he think that he could undo the curse because of his high Defense Against the Dark Arts understanding? Or was he willing or even wanting to get out of being in Hogwarts, or maybe even dying? Thank you so much for the show. I love listening. That is such an interesting point. I could break the curse. I could do it. <laughs> yeah. It's all these incompetent <laughs> wizards who are purposely getting themselves into trouble. So I could honestly see it being a mixture of both of these things. Snape has a high level of hubris. He definitely thinks a lot of himself. So I could see him thinking that he could be the one to break the curse. I could also see him thinking, I don't really have anything to live for. So if it doesn't work and I die, whatever. Oh my gosh. Wow. <laughs> well, think about the mental state yeah. that Snape is in. Oh, yeah, I guess. That's just such a dark thought. Well, I, I mean, I, yeah. that's all of Snape's thoughts. Oh. All he has are dark thoughts. Oh, I also see Dumbledore as controlling information, right? Well, obviously, sorry. (laughs) Sorry, everybody for stating the complete obvious there. Uh, But it's possible. It's possible that even if Snape could connect the position to say, oh, it has high turnaround or it might even be cursed. There's nothing saying Dumbledore would ever tell Snape that Voldemort came and asked for a job. Right. So maybe Snape can't doesn't have the information to really figure out that Voldemort himself is cursing it. And that could also play into effect what Faisa is saying about Snape thinking he can break the curse. Um, If he assumes there's something wonky going on with his position and doesn't know crucially that Voldemort is behind it the way Dumbledore knows Voldemort is behind it, then he wouldn't necessarily even be remiss uh, in thinking he could break the curse. He's a great wizard. Snape is 
very top rated, good at what he does, except for teaching and everything. So glad though that you brought up Dumbledore because it's all part of his master plan, right? He doesn't let Snape take the position until it's beneficial to his overall goal. Yeah. And we see that in Half-Blood Prince. He lets Snape take defense against the dark arts. He brings in Slughorn to take over potions. And he knew that by letting Snape take this post, Snape was not going to be able to be in that post beyond that sixth year. Yeah. That guy. It's all part of the plan. We could have gotten rid of Snape earlier, but Dumbledore also wanted to keep him at Hogwarts. He has a control issue. Look at all of the things that he keeps at Hogwarts in order to supposedly keep them protected. Chess pieces. Strategizing. This next uh, email comes from Caitlin about the Marauder's Map. She says, I'm never caught up before you do a Muggle Mail episode, so I'm never sure if I can send in my thoughts, but I think I'm caught up now. Congrats, Caitlin. You made it in. Woo! My theory on the Marauders leaving the map behind once it was confiscated was that they figured someone, quote, worthy of following in their mischief would be able to find it. They were right. Fred and George found it quickly, and they were the two that were compared to James and Sirius. The map isn't like the Invisibility Cloak because it's not an heirloom. My understanding of the timeline is that the first war had picked up a lot by the time they were leaving school, so they genuinely might not have cared at that point. My theory is that Lupin was looking for the map, though, during the year that he was teaching. He said he found a boggart in Filch's office. I think he was searching Filch's office for the map and finding the boggart was a happy coincidence. Oh, snap. That's really interesting. (laughs) Yeah, and... I couldn't remember if we brought this up on the show a few weeks ago when we were initially talking about this, but there is some additional context available on wizardingworld.com. This was written by J.K. Rowling back in the Pottermore days. Um, It's in the article about the Marauder's Map. It says, although the precise circumstances surrounding the makers' loss of their map are not given in the Harry Potter novels, it is easy to conclude that they eventually overreached themselves and were cornered by Filch, probably on a tip-off from Snape, whose obsession it had become to expose his arch-rival James Potter in wrongdoing. The masterpiece of a map was confiscated in Sirius, James, Remus, and Peter's final year, and none of them were able to steal it back from a well-prepared and suspicious Filch. So that's why Filch would have it. It's funny that Rowling says, Although it's never explained in the Harry Potter novels, it's easy to conclude. If Rowling's saying this, I think it becomes canon. Right. It's not just easy to conclude. It's now canon. Right. <laughs> oh, that's their that's their wishy-washy reporting style. Yeah, yeah. Well, no, this is this piece was written by J.K. Rowling. Oh, well, there you go. Right. Yeah. So it's yeah. like you this is your IP. Like you created this. So <laughs> If you're saying that's what happened, we're going to accept be like, that's what happened. <laughs> it'd be like if she said, uh, you know, well, Dumbledore never fell in love with a woman during the Harry Potter novel. So it's easy to conclude he's gay. Right. Let's just take that leap. <laughs> yeah, that's how she announced it. Right. When we were at the uh, reading, that's exactly yeah. how she announced. Dumbledore's it's easy gay. to conclude. <laughs> 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 All right. Well, that does it for the mailbag. Thanks, everybody who wrote in we get so many emails so we don't get to include them all on the show but we do read them all and we love reading all the feedback it's so nice because 
we, you know, we're talking to each other here and we have the Discord too, getting real-time feedback, but it's so nice to receive emails and calls from people after we release episodes. It's a wonderful reminder that uh, you all are listening and engaging with what we're releasing. So thank you to everybody who does submit feedback. We really, really appreciate it. Next week, we will be releasing a bonus MuggleCast that is focused on our 18th birthday. Hey. It will be released on our birthday for patrons, patreon.com slash MuggleCast. And everyone else will receive it the next day at our usual Tuesday release time. We release two bonus MuggleCasts exclusively for patrons every month discussing other aspects of Harry Potter that we don't have time for on the main show. For example, we looked at all the Easter eggs in Hogwarts Legacy um, just a week or two ago. That was a lot of fun. And even though these bonus MuggleCast installments are released on Patreon, patrons do get a special RSS feed that they can pop into their favorite podcast app so you can get all this bonus content just like you do the main show. One notable exception to this is Spotify, but news about that one is coming soon, very soon, and we are very excited about it. In two weeks, chapter by chapter, we'll continue with Prisoner of Azkaban, chapter 18, Mooney, Wormtail, Padfoot, and Prongs, where the full identities of the Marauders are officially uh, revealed. We're in dun, it now. Dun, dun. Okay, it's time for our weekly trivia game, Quizage. Last week's Quizage question. According to the Animagus Registrar Hermione looks at, how many registered Animagi have there been this century? The correct answer, are we really surprised? Seven. Seven Animagi registered in the last century. The most magically powerful number. And the correct answer was submitted by Burnt French Lee Jordan, Kara, Crookshank's first owner, Elizabeth Kay, Jenny Penny, Oyote, Justin Smith, Mrs. Weasley's overworked knitting needles, My Animagus is bigger than yours, Nifflers are the best, Pettigrew's missing digit, Ron's unnecessary urge <laughs> to kick Mrs. Norris, and Star Fox. Ooh. Uh, Man, these names. Y'all, I think I've said it before, but this is like... I would say 50% of the reason I tune in for live recordings. I just got to hear all these names. Why you tune in? Yep. You're supposed to be here. Oh, that's, <laughs> that's right. This is a paid position, huh? Oh, oh, well, I appreciate it, Laura. I enjoy reading the names also and uh, curating. I enjoy coming up with some of them. <laughs> <laughs> Half of these uh, winners every week are my guests. Um, so here is next week's Quizage question. Who did Snape see Lupin traveling with on the grounds of Hogwarts toward the Whomping Willow in the 1970s? It's another question which not you will Dumbledore. find the answer to. And not, <laughs> not <laughs> Dumbledore, who is absent this entire book so much so we can't even add to our Dumbledore lie count. Submit your answer to us via the Quizich form on the MuggleCast website, mugglecast.com slash Quizich, or click on Quizich from the main nav, and right next to where it says Quizich, it also says Live, which is where you can find all our panels for LeakyCon and all of the ones we're going to be participating in this very next 
weekend. If you're going in Chicago, please say hi, stop by, and see where and when we will be participating. We also have a lot of friends going, uh, a lot of other podcasts that we really enjoy, so we hope everyone takes time and, and really just explores uh, everywhere. Couple of reminders before we wrap up the show. If you have any feedback about today's episode or chapter by chapter or anything else, you can send an owl to mugglecast at gmail.com or you can use the contact form on mugglecast.com to send a voice message. And we will get to some of those in the bonus Mugglecast. We got birthday messages. Yay. Uh, record that voice message using the voice memo app on your phone and then email us that file or you can use our phone number, which is 19203 Muggle. That's one nine two zero three six eight four four five three. I tested the number the other day. I was reminded you hear Eric's pleasant voice when you give that phone number a call. Thank you for calling the Bucklecast hotline. <laughs> <laughs> well, if you're an Apple Podcast user, by the way, and you don't want to support us via Patreon for just two ninety nine a month, you can receive ad free and early access to Mugglecast right within the Apple Podcast app. Patreon does offer more benefits, but if you prefer to support us right with an Apple podcast, there is an option to do that. There's an annual subscription and a free trial option as well. And if you enjoy MuggleCast and think other muggles would too, tell a friend about the show. We would really appreciate that. And we'd also appreciate if you left a review. It's great reading those reviews as well. And last but not least, don't forget to follow us on social media, especially this week, since we'll have some coverage from LeakyCon. Our username is MuggleCast on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, TikTok, and Threads. I can't say that one without <laughs> laughing. <laughs> oh, excuse me. Wait a second. X. X. Oh, my God. This is, Social media is such a joke. I can't I take it anymore. I'm, I'm tapping out. <laughs> social media is not the only thing that's a joke, but we can uh, talk about some of that. I'm millennial. Instagram, Facebook, X. My school firewall never would have let me go to X.com, but uh, I'm grateful that the URL is still apparently Twitter for now. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. There's a uh, meme somewhere with uh, all of the different inappropriate sites that also have X in their little icon. And it's like, which one is actually a social media site? (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, everybody, for listening. I'm Andrew. I'm Eric. I'm Micah. Y soy Laura. There you go, Aww. Andrew. Aww. Bye, everyone. Bye, y'all. Bye. Bye. See you in Chicago. Hey. Hey.